George McDonald said it's a matter of indifference to the grace of God. How abominable we are as long as we're seekers of the heart of God. That's, uh, that's truth. He was right. Would you turn with me please to Psalm 95, 95th Psalm. Next week we're going to begin a new series of studies in the book of Joshua. And uh, I want to give you some uh, advance warning so you can begin to read. I also want to remind you that our growth growth groups will be studying Joshua. What we do uh, from the fall through the spring is uh, encourage you to study the passage on your own. Then you meet with a growth group to discuss the passage. And then that passage is the passage that's taught on Sunday morning. So you have three opportunities to study the text for yourself and uh, to hear from it. The What's happening here? Huh? Okay, you're sure. Okay. <laughs> the book of Joshua is a difficult book to understand. <laughs> Don't breathe. Is that better or worse? Or higher. How's that? All right. <laughs> That's the tie that blinds. (laughs) See, now it's all wrinkled, too, dude. Where was I? The the book of Joshua is a difficult book, I think, for us to understand. It has some difficult sections in it. It will raise some moral questions. And therefore, I want you to have something of a theological background for the book. I don't want to bore you with this material, and I hope I don't, because theology doesn't have to be boring. But there is a theological basis that we have to lay in order to understand the book. And that's what I want to do from uh, from Psalm 95 this morning. This is probably one of the Davidic Psalms. The book of Hebrews attributes it to David. The title uh, doesn't contain David's name, but the Greek versions do. So uh, we're uh, we're content to uh, say that David was the author of this of this uh, particular psalm. It was probably recited, sung, used in worship during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was uh, sort of like a church picnic. A pious picnic, so to speak, where all Israelites gathered in Jerusalem to remember the time they spent camping out in the wilderness. They built little booths out of sticks, and uh, it was a very festive occasion. They ate together. They worshipped together. uh, They played together. And it was a time to think back on on the wilderness experience. And the psalm was probably sung and recited at uh, at that time. Uh, the song has been used in church worship for years. It goes all the way back into the practice of the primitive church. It's found in the orders of worship, in the prayer books of the 2nd and 3rd century churches. Uh, it went into the title Venite, which is the Latin name for the first word. Oh, come, let us sing. And it was basically in the church a call to worship. 
But though it is that, it is certainly a call to worship. I see it as something more. I see it as a guide to worship. It teaches us how to respond to the, to the revelation that God has given to us. It falls into three parts. The first part is an appeal to rejoice, to sing, to tune up, uh, to cheer up, to clear your voice, and to sing with a full voice to God. Let us sing for joy. To our Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. The words that are used, uh, singing, shouting aloud, are much too tame for our worship. These people came unglued. They got excited, like uh, the faithful 400 at the BSU uh, game yesterday, if you watched it on television. Every time uh, BSU did something well, they would leap to their feet and scream and Wave their banners, and uh, they were sort of a lost uh, group in the multitude there, but, but they were uh, cheering uh, the Broncos on. It's basically what, what the psalmist is talking about. Let's get excited about what God has done. Um, this last summer, I had an opportunity to fish Henry's Lake two or three times, and on each occasion, uh, there was a, an elderly gentleman fishing out of a boat. Some of you that fish that lake a lot probably know and, and have seen him. And apparently he's famous over there. And he has a dog that fishes with him. And the dog barks every time he catches a fish. <laughs> and it, I was so intrigued that I paddled my float tube over near his boat and just watched the whole procedure. And, and it, uh, every time he would have a fish on, the dog would leap to his feet and he'd start to bark. And he would bark all the time he was playing the fish until he released it. And then the dog uh, would lay back down the bottom of the boat. It just really did tickle me. And uh, after a bit, the dog got tired and went to sleep. And after that, whenever he would catch a fish, he'd give the dog a little poke with his toe. <coughs> and he would say, I've got one. And the dog would jump up and start to bark. Uh, that's great. That's, that's rejoicing in what uh, his master has done. And uh, that's, what, uh, that's what David calls us to here, to, uh, to rejoice in God. You, can make, you don't have to sing well. Just make a, a noise, that's all. Make some racket. Express your appreciation. Dance if you want to. But let God know how much you appreciate what he's done. Now, the call for joy in this case is based upon God's creative acts. Verse 3. Why should we sing for joy to the Lord? For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. This is uh, this psalm is in... in in that section of psalms I referred to before, the kingship psalms. The psalms that center on our Lord's lordship and his majesty and his authority and his rule. The Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. As C.S. Lewis says, he's the king, I tell you. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The depths and the heights are his, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Here's a note of praise, because God is the maker and maintainer of the universe. There are no random particles, no molecules are out of order. Sun comes up every morning because God decrees its course. There is no such thing as chance in God's universe. Everything is screened through his love and through his sovereign power. And for that, the psalmist gives thanks. So the first call is to rejoice in God's creative acts The second call is to bow down in worship because of his care. Notice verses 6 and 7. Come, let us bow down in worship. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. The words for worship in the Old Testament all play upon the idea of making oneself very small. Uh, Our English word worship conveys the idea of attributing worth to another, giving credit where credit is due. And there is that note in the Old Testament, ascribed to the Lord, the glory due his name, one of the Psalms says, and we have uh, incorporated that into into a chorus. That's one function of worship to give credit to God, because that's where credit is due. But, but all of the Hebrew words have the idea of getting down, bowing down, kneeling down, uh, making yourself very, very small, humbling yourself. And the point that the psalmist seems to be making is that it is not nature that humbles us. Nature may intimidate us sometimes. We look at a great mountain or a waterfall, and it has an intimidating effect on us. It makes us feel small. But what really makes us feel small is God's love and his care and his compassion and his concern and his great redemptive acts for us. He plays on this idea of hands. Notice what he he does. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. In verse 7, he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, and the NESB translates correctly, the flock of his hand. The NIV, for some reason, misses that subtlety, and uh, they say the, the, the flock of his care, and it's true, but the point that the psalmist is making is that we're in his hands. I love that Allstate ad, because it speaks so eloquently of the relationship we have with God. You're in good hands, you're in mighty good hands with the Almighty. Here are these, these vast, these great hands... That created the universe uh, stretched out to us in love. The one who made the universe holds us. So why do we need to worry about the circumstances of life? Because we're in good hands with with him. And, And he is moving toward the point that it is these hands that created our salvation, that 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 redeemed us, that set us free from fear and guilt. And all of the, the, the past that plagues us. Somewhere I saw a picture once. I wish someone could tell me where it, where it can be found because I have not seen it since. But it was a picture of Jesus after his resurrection. And he was seated in a garden. And he had a small child on his lap. And he was holding the child in his arms. And uh, the, the, there's a little girl. And the little girl was holding one of his hands, looking at his hands. And you could see the nail prints in the palm of his hand. And she, she was pointing to the nail prints and looking up at our Lord with a question on her face. And anyway, there was no, uh, no title. It was untitled. But the unspoken title is eloquent, really, because anyone who knows a child knows exactly what she was asking. You walk into a room and you have a bandage on your foot. A child will say, what, what happened to your foot? And that's what she is asking Jesus. What happened to your hand? And there was something about that picture that really spoke to me, just the quiet eloquence of it. Our Lord crucified for this little girl and for me, holding her in his hands, the same hands that were stretched out on the cross, uh, pierced for our sins, as Isaiah puts it. Uh, One poet put it like this, The hands of Christ are very frail, for they were broken by a nail. But only he reaches heaven at last, whom those broken hands hold fast. Now for that, you see the psalmist gives thanks. He gives praise 
for God's great creative acts, and he gives praise, he bows down in worship, he is humbled by his redemptive acts. We are the people of his pasture and the flock of his hand. Now he comes to what I think is the punchline of this psalm. Worship involves rejoicing. Worship involves humbling ourselves. But worship also involves obedience. And if you'll notice, there is a decided change in tone at this point. God himself breaks into the psalm. This is an oracle. Uh, Those of you that were in the Navy will recall uh, the whistle coming through the pipe and the voice saying, this is the captain. Everybody began to listen. Uh, This is the Lord speaking at at this point, and uh, we are supposed to hear him. Actually, everything from verse 8 through verse 11 should be in quotes if it's not in your Bible. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me. And you can see, this is the Lord speaking. Where our fathers tested and tried me. Though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said there are people whose hearts go astray. And they have not known my rest. So I declared on oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. And the psalm just ends. He leaves that line ringing in our ears. And in in the Hebrew text it is even more poignant. Because this is a, a... it's a little hard to explain unless you're a, a grammarian, but this is a conditional clause without any ending. Literally what he says is, if you enter into my rest, dot, 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 and you wait for what grammarians would call the apodosis, that is the clause that closes the, the conditional sentence. If you enter into my rest, and there's no ending. And, and we say, well, you know, what does he mean? Well, I have a friend who teaches Hebrew at, at Westminster Seminary, and he ought to know what he's talking about. He tells me that grammarians now are agreed that what should be supplied is the unthinkable phrase for a Hebrew. There's an ellipsis here. That what, what, what any Jew would understand is that, Jesus, is that God is saying, If you enter into my rest, then I am not God. And such an idea, such a notion was so unthinkable, a Jew would never put that down. But they knew, they understood. This is the strongest way that a vow could be stated. You will never by any means enter into my rest. Now at this point, we we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is this psalm talking about? Here are these uh, gracious uh, words about God's hand surrounding us and his... His creative ability, and suddenly this, this this rather harsh, hard word. You'll never enter into my rest, God says. And he was angry when he said it. And since God always gets angry at the right things, he never gets angry at the wrong things, we have to understand what it is he was angry about. Now here's where I have to get, as Carolyn says, I have to get historical. Um, and, and some of you are interested in history and some of you are not. So uh, hang with me just for a few minutes, will you? Because this is necessary for understanding the psalm and for understanding the book of Joshua because we want to talk about a theology of the land. That's a theme in the Old Testament, the theology of the land. 
that we have to understand before we get into Joshua. All of you know who Abraham was. Originally, his name was Abram, which means high father. Abram, when he was first called, was a pagan. He didn't know God. He wasn't a friend of God. He was a moon worshiper, most likely, and named for one of his deities. God called him to himself. And he called him to another country, out of Ur the Chaldees, down into the, to the land of Canaan, what we call Israel today. And he gave him a number of promises. Those are all spelled out in Genesis 12 and following. If you read those chapters in 12 through 18, you'll get the details of, of the promises. God said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. As a matter of fact, you'll be the father of nations. A number of ethnic groups will spring from your loins. And, and, and in memory of that event, Abraham was renamed Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And, of course, uh, the Jews, the Arabs, as well as any number of other groups sprang from Abraham. The second promise that God gave is that he would, through that nation, bless the entire world. Through Abraham and his seed, he said, I'm going to enrich the entire world. The third promise was that he would give Abraham a land. His people would have a land. Uh, a number of things are, are necessary to form a nation. You have to have a people. You have to have a constitution. You have to have some kind of authority figure you have to, or, or some kind of leadership. And you have to have a land. So God promised that he would, he would give Abraham a piece of real estate. Now, if you go over here today, most of it, apart from those par portions of Israel that the Jews have, uh, have irrigated and turned into a garden, it's really fairly ugly. And it wasn't much to look at even then. It's been denuded a number of times since then, and, and it's much worse shape now than it was then. But still, a very small piece of, of ground, about the, the north-south dimensions, about the distance from here to McCall, and east-west, about the distance from here to the Oregon border, and that's the size of the land. A lot of traffic there. People going anywhere in, in the Middle East had to go through the land of Israel. So it's strategically located, but the land itself is not much. Nevertheless, God said that's Emmanuel's land. That's the land I've chosen to dwell in. That's the land for my people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons, daughters, they, daughter, they lived in that, in that land over a period of about 200 years. Then, as you know, a drought afflicted the land. So they were driven out. They went into Egypt. They were in Egypt for 400 plus years, probably as much as 480 years. About 1440 B.C., there's some question, but that's, that, makes them, that period makes the most sense to me. About 1440 B.C., they came out of the land of people two and a half million strong. They went in, 70 people in Jacob's clan. They came out two and a half times the population of, of Idaho. There's no analogy for that in history, that kind of reproduction and expansion. They came out, as you know, by way of the Red Sea. They literally had their backs against the wall. They, they were being delivered. They were, they were delivered out of Egypt. They came to an arm of the Red Sea. It wasn't some little lake. It was actually a, a part of the Red Sea. And uh, God opened a way through, that, through the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land, and they were delivered. Hosea says that at that point, God delivered his son out of Egypt. They became a nation. 
Now that event, what we call the Exodus, and it's always uh, written with a capital E because there, you know it's that one event that we're thinking of. The Exodus stands out in Israel's history as the one great redemptive event, the likes of which was not seen until the cross. The, the, the uh, writers of the Old Testament keep going back to that event. They go back to it to point out that this is the time when God redeemed Israel and made them a nation, brought them to himself. They became his people, and he became their God at that point. Don Pettinger pointed out to me uh, Psalm 77 this past week, and I started reading through it, and I was struck by the psalm because that's precisely what the poet does in that psalm. He's, he's having one of these sleepless nights. He can't get to sleep. He's worried about, you know, he's got debts he can't pay. His back is killing him. He hates his job. Uh, he, his kids are giving him grief. His car won't start. You know, it's just one of, those, one of those days. He's tossing and turning, and he's wrapped up in his sheets, and he, his mind is a mess, and he, he thinks, what I should do is think about God, and that just discourages him because he can't focus on God. So he says, well, I'll remember the good old days. So he thinks back to those days, and, and that, that doesn't do any good. It reminds me of some graffiti I saw on a restroom wall once. Nostalgia ain't what it used to be. Uh, <clears throat> that's the way he's feeling. And uh, then he says, I'll think about God's uh, miraculous work. He uses a singular noun. And he thinks back to the Exodus. Back to that great event. He said, when we stood on the brink of the, of the Red Sea, and then he says an interesting thing. We couldn't see God's footprints. In other words, God had never gone that way before. There was no trail. There was no track. He couldn't follow God's footprints through the sea. They didn't know what God was going to do. And he opened a path through the sea, and they walked through on dry, on dry ground. And they looked back, and the water swallowed up the Egyptians, and they were a nation. They were set free, say, from the past. One thing for sure about the Lord, you never know what he's going to do. He's always creative and innovative, and, and, and it's that sort of thing the poet is focusing on when, when, the, when things get tough, when you don't see any way through. God has a way to take you through that difficult situation. Now, that Exodus experience, the crossing of the Red Sea, became the one great redemptive event that Israel kept looking back to. That's when the nation was born. And then they were brought down to Sinai. And, and please know that the law was not given at Sinai to relate them to God. They were already his people. He had already said to them, you're my son. He said that of Israel. And he said, uh, uh, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. They, they were already a family and they, they got to Sinai. And the law wasn't given to draw them any closer to him. The law was given as a way of expressing the holiness of God wherever they went. And uh, from Sinai, then they marched up to Kadesh Barnea, that famous oasis to the south of Canaan from which they were to launch the assault in, into the land. And uh, I, I don't need to tell you the story. You, you, you know what happened there. Uh, Moses appointed 12 spies, and they went the length and breadth of the, of the land. They went all the way up to Hamath and to modern-day Syria, 250 miles to the north, the farthest reaches of the Abrahamic Covenant, the promise extended up to the Euphrates. They went all the way up there and went up and down the great north-south ridge that runs through the middle of, of the land of Canaan, and, and they brought back a bunch of grapes. If you go to Israel today, you'll see these uh, the logo on the side of the vans that the Bureau of Tourism uses shows this two spies with a big a bunch of grapes from the valley of Eskal. And uh, they came back to, uh, to Kadesh, 
And uh, they said, well, there's good news or bad news. Which do you want first? And they said, well, give us the good news. And, and they said, well, it's just as God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But the bad news is there are giants in the land. And, and, and we, we can't go in. can't go in. And the people began to moan and cry and gripe. And they said, let's appoint another leader and go back to Egypt. They knew Moses wouldn't take them back. So they thought, well, we'll get rid of this fellow. And we'll get someone who will take us back. Things were so much better back there. And uh, they, they just began to complain. They did not want to do things God's way. See? Caleb and Joshua were the only two of the spies that, that were willing to do, do things God's way. By the way, I, I've often thought a good trivial question would be, uh, name one of the ten spies that refused to go into the land. I'll bet none of you, I can't even name one. I just read the passage this week. They, they are unforgettable characters. I mean, they are forgettable characters. The two unforgettable people were Caleb and Joshua, who had the faith to, to believe that God could do what he said he would do. But the rest of the nation would not go. God said, all right, that, that's it. That's it. You can't go into the land. Moses got down on his knees and he pled with God. He said he reminded God as though God needed reminding. You're a compassionate God. You're, you're a gracious God. You're a forgiving God. God says, no, I know all that. I am forgiving. And I have forgiven them. Interesting statement. I have forgiven them. This whole bunch of people. They won't do things my way. I have forgiven them. But they will never enter my rest. That is the land. They'll never enter the land. And the phrase that's picked up here in Psalm 95, if they ever enter the land, is a direct quote from Numbers 14. If they ever enter the land, then I'm not God. Because they won't do things my way. Now let's go back to Psalm, Psalm 95. Uh, Parenthetically, let me say that uh, that whole generation died off, as you know, those that were 20 and above, 20, 20 years of age and above. And they regathered, they reconvened at Kadesh Barnea after that period of wandering. They scattered, uh, number says, as shepherds across the desert. They didn't wander as a group, they didn't wander in mass. They broke up in little bands. And, and finally they gathered again at Kadesh after 38 years. And they traveled up through the plains of Moab and camped up there. And we'll pick up the story next week with the story of Joshua and how the second generation took the land. But that first generation did not go into the land. Now, it's this event. That David is referring to in Psalm 95. Now listen carefully. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me. That is, they, they wouldn't take me at my word. They wouldn't do things my way. Though they had seen what I did, For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's all taken from Numbers 14, the story at Kadesh and and the vow that they would never go into the land. Now, there are two geographical references here that we may not uh, be familiar with. One is Meribah and the other is Massa. Actually, there are two places in the wilderness that were called Meribah. 
And the first is also called Massah. Meribah is a place that they, uh, it was named for an event that took place very early in the wilderness wanderings. Just a month or so after they crossed the Red Sea and they were traveling down through the Sinai Peninsula. They began to moan and cry and complain and gripe because they didn't have enough to eat and they couldn't stand at manna anymore. And they didn't have anything to drink and they wanted to go back to Egypt and they rebelled against Moses. And... Uh, Moses uh, and, and God said, all right, I'm going to provide for them. So he provided water out of the rock. And then God said, name this place Meribah and Massah because this is where they complained. That's what the word Meribah means. It means to gripe, to complain, to fuss at God. And Massah, which means testing. In other words, they, they, they would not do things the way I asked them to do it. That attitude was the attitude of the nation of Israel all the way through the desert while God took them down to Sinai and then while he took them back up to Kadesh Barnea and then after they scattered and they, they lived as shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness until they came back to Kadesh Barnea. And the same thing happened that happened before. They began to complain and so God brought water out of the rock. That's the incident, incident we talked about a couple of weeks ago where Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it and God said, all right, name this place Meribah too. And that name, Meribah, brackets the whole experience of Israel in the wilderness. In other words, God's commentary on his people during this period is Meribah. They are a bunch of complainers. And they will not do things my way. Now, it's that expression that that David picks up in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. And what is startling about this statement is that it is addressed to people that were already in the land. Do you understand the significance of that statement? This psalm was written about 1,000 B.C., assuming that David wrote it, at least at 1,000, maybe later. The experience at Kadesh Barnea happened about 1404 or 1402, or pardon me, 1438, something like that, B.C., so, uh, you know, 400 plus years before this had happened, David then writes a psalm and he says to Israel living in the land, don't harden your hearts the way you did at Meribah. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said there are people whose hearts go astray. So I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And an Israelite reading this would say, but we're here. We're here, we're enjoying God's rest. And suddenly it dawns on us that there is something more to the land than a piece of real estate. That piece of land that we call Israel today is a symbol in the Old Testament. It's a type. It's a God-designed illustration of everything that God wants to give us in salvation. The land was the gift of God to his people. Just as salvation is the gift of God to his people. So when we start looking at the book of Joshua, we will not only see the land as a piece of real estate, we'll see it as an example of everything that is ours by right of possession. God gave them the land, and there was lots of struggle, there was a lot of fighting, there were disappointments, there were failures, they made fools of themselves at times. But the point is, they were fighting a battle that was already won. God had given them that land, and now they had to go in and possess it. 
Now, the point I want to make is that when we talk about the book of Joshua and we see the land as an example of our salvation, what God has given to us, this isn't something we're intruding into the text. This isn't something we're foisting on the text. This is something that the Old Testament writers clearly understood. We're not winging it. These are not shots in the dark. We aren't spiritualizing the text. This is what the Old Testament writers themselves did. David said to people of his generation, if you don't do things God's way, if you don't listen to his voice, you won't enter into the land. They say, well, wait a minute. We're in the land. No, you're not. No, you're not. You can be in the land and not in the land. Do you understand? Let me say it again, just so you understand. The land is a picture of salvation. And an Israelite could be living under David's rule in Israel and still not be in the land because his heart was not submissive to the king. Not to David, but to the real king of Israel, the Lord himself. And that's why David says, you have to understand what worship is all about. It involves rejoicing and joy and worship and it involves humbling yourselves, but predominantly it involves obedience. Oh, God knows you'll fail. But you don't need to fear. God suffers fools uh, graciously. You know, he, he understands, but, but there has to be a heart of obedience, a willingness to submit to his righteous rule. And you may call yourself anything you want to call yourself, but you may not call yourself a child of God unless you're willing to submit to the king. See? Here's this dire warning. It just pops out of the text. Right at the moment when we're most entranced by the, by, by the grace of God, here's this firm word. Today, if you hear my voice, this is God speaking. Listen to me. Don't harden your heart the way you did at Meribah. Do things God's way. Submit to his role. Now, in just a few minutes that we have, would you turn to Hebrews 3? Because the writer of Hebrews takes us a, a step further. I was always told in seminary, you must never spiritualize texts. texts. And uh, uh, it just strikes me that, that the New Testament writers are not spiritualizing Old Testament texts. They're, they're, they're playing fair with the text. They're simply doing what the prophets did to their own writings. They're seeing that there's something more. Oh, by the way, when we talk about Joshua, what you'll notice is that there appear to be some conflicting statements in the book itself. Joshua will say to the people, you've possessed the land. You have all the land. In fact, there are these specific statements to the effect that Israel had possessed all the land. And then a couple of verses later, it will say, but there remains much more land to be to be inhabited. And there is this now but not yet idea that's embedded in the book of Joshua. Which again gives us that hint that mere possession of the land is not all that's involved. There's much more coming, which is the full possession of salvation that was yet to come in in Christ. Now, Hebrews 3, and I don't have time really to spend on this text. Let me tell you quickly what I think is going on here. I don't know who wrote this book. I have no idea. It was not one of the first uh, line of apostles uh, because of the statement the author makes that what's found in this book is what he had heard from those that heard our Lord, and none of the apostles would have said anything like that. They received their revelation directly from our Lord Jesus. This is someone who wrote under the authority of one of the early apostles. He is writing to Jews, clearly to Jews, Hebrew Christians. He is not writing to a specific church. 
as so many of the other books in the New Testament uh, uh, are. They, this is called a general epistle. It's in the category of New Testament books we call general epistles because they have a, a general appeal, not written to a specific church. But in the Hebrew Christians of all kinds, some who were regenerated, authentic Christians, others who were not yet regenerated, who had gone along for the ride, who called themselves Christians but whose hearts were not submitted to Christ. Uh, in a congregation like this, you know, that's the sort of thing you would find. Some of us have submitted ourselves to the Lordship of Christ and we have been regenerated and we belong to him. Some of us are just still sort of looking in. We're, we may think of ourselves as Christians. Some of you may not think of yourself yet as a Christian. You're, you're still learning and, and you're moving toward the Lord, but you've not yet submitted to his Lordship. Others of us... Uh, have made some sort of nominal commitment to Christ, but there's no real commitment to obedience. And so this book would be addressed to a congregation, if, if you want to call it that, like that, a uh, sort of mixed multitude. And in the book, the emphasis over and over again in, in, in these so-called warning sections is take note, take stock. Is your heart really submitted to the Savior? See, a lot of these people wanted to back out of their commitment they wanted to disassociate themselves from Christians because they were under a great deal of pressure from their Jewish brothers and sisters. A close-knit Jewish community, they were feeling the effects of their Christian faith, and they were wanting to jettison the whole thing. And They were thinking it through again, and the writer of Hebrews says, Look, you've got to realize you've got a greater priest, you've got a greater covenant, you've got a, you've got a greater salvation. Everything you have in Christ is better than what you had in Judaism. Don't go back. Go on. Go on. And if your heart has genuinely been changed, you've been regenerated, you will go on. Now in chapter 3, what the author does is quote Psalm 95. <laughs> I won't take time to read it. Verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, he attributes uh, divine inspiration to the author of Psalm 95. And he quotes the section we just read. And then he says in verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see what he's doing? Same argument that David is using a thousand years later. Except now, uh, well, the land is still uh, what we have in, in Christ is our salvation. And it's not Israel that he's speaking to. It's us. It's us. And he's saying, today, today, do it God's way. Because, as he goes on to argue, if you don't do it God's way, you will not enter into rest. So again, the rest here is not or the land here is not a piece of real estate. It is salvation, again. It's the rest of God. And I don't have time to develop the argument, except to read uh, verse 8 of chapter 4. Um, he argues in the first seven verses that uh, the very fact that David says, today you need to enter into rest, indicates that the conquest of Palestine... Uh, did not uh, uh, didn't complete the concept of of possession of all that God has for us. There's much more coming. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later through David about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. And his appeal in his day, 2,000 years ago, is the same appeal that David makes 3,000 years ago. It's the same appeal that God makes to us every day. That's why every day is today. Listen to what God has to say. Take it seriously. If you genuinely belong to him, you will take his word seriously. And you will enter into salvation. Now, again, it's not to say that there won't be struggle and there won't be failure and we won't be foolish and we won't, we won't struggle sometimes with the will of God. But the point is, down deep inside, the issue is settled. He's the king. And we're going to follow him. So I, I would simply say to you what, what David says and what the author of Hebrews says. And I would say it to myself. Today, don't harden your heart. God may be asking some of you to do this very hard thing. Your, your choice is to follow God. And if you're going to follow God, it's going to mean a great deal of hurt and pain in your life. If you are genuinely a Christian, if you have entered into the land, then you'll be willing to endure the hurt, despising the shame as our Lord did. That's what it means to follow our Lord, you see. Now, some of you uh, heard these stories when you were children growing up and uh, you outgrew them as we say. You went off to college and you became broader-minded, much more liberal in your thinking, or you went off to form, start a career, or you went into the military. Or you left all this behind and you've tried a lot of different tracks. And, and all, every day God's been saying to you what David says in this psalm, today, today, listen to my voice. There's only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The liberal mind says, no, there are many ways, many ways to get to God. God says, no, there's only one way, and that's to do it my way. And my way is to come through obedience to the Son. And if you're willing to come to the light, it doesn't make a difference how abominable you are, how disreputable you are, how disgusting you are. It doesn't make any difference. God will never turn you away. He just wants you to come to the light, that's all. Let him expose your disobedience, and you'll enter into rest. That concept of rest is what the world's looking for. But nothing that you buy or paint on or ride in or sniff or smoke is, is going to give it to you. See? Rest comes from being in the land. And being in the land comes from a submission to the Lord of the land. Let's pray. Lord, we come together at your table and we, uh, we want to be be cleansed from within. We want you to purify our hearts. We may and do often struggle with your will, but we know way down deep inside that we cannot ultimately resist you forever because we belong to you. And so we want to come to the light and let you expose what we are and let you begin to recreate us and change us and make us what we, we really down deep inside want to be and what you've called us to be. We do rejoice in your handiwork around us in creation, but more than that, we give thanks for your special care for us, the fact that we're in your hands and we're lovingly held and cared for. Despite our attempts to, to try to go our own way, you, you hold us and you keep us and you guard our faith unto salvation.
Let us harden our hearts. Lord, help us to come to you always with a soft heart, a willingness to let you speak to us and respond in obedience to your will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.